Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Do you see it go like this when I laugh? Oh, you can't hear. Okay. Sorry. Um... Should I do the whole line? And you're listening to it. Okay. This is Dana Balut. And I'm Hibbe Fisher. And you're listening to An Empire. It went viral. It was everywhere. I used to tell my father, you will see one day, I will make a film and I will go to Cannes. I don't know why I used to say that. I felt insulted. I was like, where is my audience? I didn't go to therapy. I think I should. This is an empire. Stories of exceptional Arabs around the world and their journey to the top. Dana, there's so much talent in the Arab world across industries, uh, but we've never actually interviewed anybody from this specific field, from architecture before. Today is quite special. No, we haven't. We've been trying to find, we do our best, I think, at Empire to make sure that we're representing as many industries as possible. And this was one that we were really adamant about. And for me, when I hear the word architecture, the first name that comes to mind is a man who built some of Beirut's most iconic structures, Bernard Khoury. Growing up in Lebanon, his name and architecture were like basically synonymous. Bernard Khoury is one of Lebanon's most renowned architects. If you grew up in the country at all, you've likely spent late nights in one of his early structures like BO18, an underground bunker-like nightclub whose ceilings open up when the sun comes out. Or Yabani, one of Beirut's first sushi bars where you take an elevator, sit in a couch inside of an elevator and are taken underground to this also kind of round-shaped bar. We used to go there on my birthdays when I was uh, growing up. <laughs> Bernard started off building structures in the entertainment industry and moved on to designing and building more permanent residential structures. And I call them structures and not buildings because they don't look like typical buildings. Some of them are like these angular, dark, experimental pieces that really pop out from Beirut's skyline. You just can't miss them. He's also a controversial guy. Um, a lot of people in the country either really, really admire him or really dislike some of the structures, but actually that's normal in art. And for better or for worse, Bernard is our most famous architect. Actually, if I'm totally frank, 
He is a lot nicer than I thought he would be. Sometimes his voice is very deep and can be intimidating. So I wasn't sure what his personality would be like. Uh, but he was quite gracious and kind. So I was pleasantly surprised. I think I can say that. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I interviewed Bernard over the phone, and similar to other interviews, I was up at five in the morning. Uh, Tamara, our producer in Beirut, met up with Bernard at his studio, and we were off. What time is it for you? Um, it's 6.30 in the morning. Aye, aye, aye. Go back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's worth it. I... So you're a night person. <laughs> Yes. But you're up at 6.30 in the morning. You don't sleep. <laughs> I don't sleep much, no. no. <laughs> okay. um, how, would your, how would your parents, um, how would they describe you as a child? I guess I was a bit loud. I'm told I had the same voice since uh, I was a kid. <laughs> because my dad had a very uh, a deep voice, a much deeper voice than mine. So I guess it runs in the family. And I'm also told then when I, when I spoke... They always looked around, they never looked down to listen to the kid. They always searched for the adult who wasn't there, but I was me. I know you were born in Beirut, but if you were to describe your childhood to someone that doesn't know Beirut much, um, how would you describe it? Well, I was born in 68, so... The country of 300 sunny days is made up of thousands of enchanting contrasts. That was towards the end of the 30-glorious uh, years post-independence. Uh, Apartment blocks stand side by side with the magnificent villas of beautiful Beirut. Uh, and I lived between 1968 and 1975 in Beirut in a great neighborhood called Clemenceau. And in that building, my dad had an architecture office right below our apartments. And I would uh, sit and wait for the school bus on that parvis, right in front of the showroom. I loved race cars. I wanted to be a, a Formula One driver, <laughs> champion. <laughs> so I guess I didn't make that. I had a pretty happy childhood. Yeah, I'm not a traumatized baby. That was Beirut until 1975, and then... The war has ruined a country and destroyed a nation. Buildings where last year the money makers exchanged their millions are now the barricades of Beirut. Can you tell me a little bit more about what it was like living the years of the civil war? I know that you, your family moved around a lot. What was that like for you? Um, some of it great, a lot of fun. Some of it uh, a bit harder, but it started off with a, with a fantastic winter where we retrieved in the mountains and was able to ski every day. Then a short period uh, where we moved to the Commodore Hotel because my father at the time refused to leave West Beirut. Uh, in that hotel, there were no families. There were only diplomats and foreign journalists, mainly. It's a mythical place uh, in the history of the Civil War. So I was the only kid in that hotel for a few months. And there was a first generation of video games in the bar of the hotel. Game begin. I was the best player, it was 50 Lebanese cents a game. So uh, <laughs> obviously I couldn't afford to play all day. So it was the journalists who paid and basically stood in line 
to play with me because I was the best player. <laughs> I was nine years old, maybe eight, nine at the time. And I would hang out in that bar until two, one in the morning, two in the morning, because simply my parents had other shit to worry about. So that was a few months. I guess it must have been very intense times because it was a very dangerous period. Uh, we could hear the we could hear the bombs whistling above our heads as the other camp was was bombarding the area, but never the hotel itself because they knew there were journalists in it. But you know, we lived quite intense times. But to me, as a kid, it was no problem. Then we moved to Paris. That was less fun. I guess my father never. My father always thought that that this was a conflict that was going to end. It was meant to end very quickly, but it, it didn't. The Lebanese civil war went on between 1975 through 1990. Beirut's buildings were largely destroyed or riddled with bullets, often vacant from families that had fled. So many people, like Bernard, dispersed to safer countries like the U.S., France, South America. Bernard ended up attending the Rhode Island School of Design in the U.S., where he says he was on probation at least twice, with teachers trying to persuade him to quit architecture, saying it just wasn't for him. I was convinced already at a pretty early age, uh, by the age of 20 and even before, that architecture as a discipline, as a practice, had a serious problem. And at the end of the day, it's true. I design a building... Between the time the building is commissioned to me and the time I deliver it, sometimes it takes five, six, seven, eight, nine years. By the time you're done, the city is somewhere else. I became very much aware of that already in my early years at school. And this is where I think the most uh, important questions came up and that still haunt me today in my, in my, in my work. Very early on, he had begun this journey towards unconventional architecture, testing these notions of time and permanence and how cities change. So in many ways, his return to post-war Beirut in the early 90s couldn't have been more fitting. One of the reasons that brought me to Beirut in the early 90s was obviously the reconstruction, not necessarily just the reconstruction of buildings, but the reconstruction of a nation that was extremely tempting at the time. Obviously, we did not rebuild the nation. It took me time to understand that. Because the buildings in this part of the city were so badly damaged during the war, city planners were mostly able to start completely from scratch. New buildings, new roads, new infrastructure. And for Bernard, this was an exciting opportunity. I came with that culture in mind, thinking that uh, I was going to build great buildings for the people, like my dad built in the 50s and 60s, because there was a republic in the making, and a nation in the making, and institutions in the making. I thought that with that, we could start to plan a city in a far more dynamic way, in a far more connected way to economics and to various other sectors that are part of reviving the city, or part of the, the, the energy of the city. And I thought we could do something incredibly amazing. Well, what happened, unfortunately, was not that at all. The reconstruction project never happened because the state was never rebuilt. The institutions were not there. None of those. It was complete capitalism to the bone. Extreme.
When we left off, Bernard had returned to Lebanon after the civil war in the 1990s, in hopes of reconstructing what was left of the country. He had these grand plans of how he wanted to reconstruct his city, but the reality of what was possible was very different. And disillusion after disillusion, in fact, 16 commissioned projects between 1993 and 1998 that didn't lead to construction. So you basically go on the ring and you're knocked out 16 times. You give it up at some point, right? But just as Bernard was getting down on himself, wondering if he'd continue to be known as just the paper architect. I was recuperated by the entertainment sector. Because I'm a night person and after every knockout or during the knockouts, I would go and, uh, and try to find peace in bars. So my connections were there. And uh, my first project was a nightclub. And the second and the third were all entertainment projects. So for the first nightclub, I designed it late 1997, completed it in six months. So in April 1998, it was open. We had to move very quickly. And this first project, this first temporary project, is probably what Bernard is most known for, even today. It's located in Carentina, an area on the outskirts of Beirut, where really nothing remotely close to a nightclub existed. You'll hear Bernard refer to the Carentina as the quarantine, which is odd in times like these. But the area is named as such because the seaside location was where, in the early 1800s, Brahim Pasha, who was ruler of the land back then, ordered a ship to be used to hold or quarantine travelers with infectious diseases, especially leprosy or the plague. And even though no such place exists anymore, the name stuck. The trend was for complete amnesia. No reference to the recent past. And maybe, yes, I was the only one who had put his finger, unintentionally, in fact, on the quarantine. We were brought there by pure, uh, you know, for very pragmatic reasons. You know, we, we were looking for a plot in late 1997, and a friend of mine tells me, well, there's this guy who, uh, who works for the church, basically, who acts as a broker for the church. The church has a lot of land in the area of the Carantina, very close to the city, no one around you very cheap, you can make a lot of noise. Strategically, you should be located there. So he gave me this guy's name, and the name rings a bell, but I didn't get it in the beginning. And the first time I meet this guy, he shakes my hand and tells me, you're looking for a plot in Carantina? I'll say it in Arabic first, and I will translate. Now, Dafta Zewi Zewi is in the Sitta of Sabain. I cleaned it up in 1976. I know it like the palm of my hand. Turns out this was the man who was in charge of basically the troop. He was head of security of that sector in January 1976 when whatever happened, happened in Carantina. Well, what happened in Carantina is a massacre. When we got out of the buses, the phalangists started to argue among themselves. Half of the men that were with us were made to stand up against a wall with their hands above their heads. And then the phalangists sprayed them with bullets. The area was largely a low-income Palestinian slum, and in January 1976, just as the civil war was starting, it's reported that one of Lebanon's Christian militias, the Falange Party, destroyed the homes and killed 1,500 people. So the broker Bernard mentions was a member of that militia. Bernard, in the spirit of not shying away from the dark side of Lebanon's history, 
decided on that location to build his first nightclub project. The nightclub cost $370,000 and was built in six months, mainly by Bernard himself and a small team of workers. So it's like a record time, a record budget. Uh, when I built it, I didn't see it coming that way, but we brought life to this area. The bar was called BO18, and despite existing underground in a random parking lot in a suburb of Beirut far from any kind of club or scene, it quickly packed up every night. It's asleep during the day. It wakes up at night, so the thing kind of comes up. It sweats in the in the winter because we don't have uh, <laughs> we don't have the insulation membranes because this is a building I built with very little means. So it's just, they're steel plates with no uh, insulation uh, behind. So when it gets really warm inside and it's very moist and cold outside, the building sweats. I pull one or two all-nighters a week still until four, five, six in the morning in my office, which is just a couple of hundred meters away from BO18. And I love it. I love it when at one or two in the morning, in the complete silence of this area that still has not been revived, I hear boom, 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 the, you know, the bass coming out of that hole. BO18's roof opens up when the sun comes out in the early morning, so it became a place for after parties. After you hit the club in Lebanon that closed at around 3 a.m., you'd head to BO18 and watch the sun rise from above you. It was a classic example of if you build it, they will come. And it wasn't just Beirut's young clubbers that took notice. Overnight, BO18 provoked an architectural avalanche. And I think by 1999 or 2000, it was one of the most published buildings in the architecture media worldwide. It was everywhere. But architecture is a political act, of course. But in many ways, I think if we're going to talk about symbolism and building symbols and icons of your country, I think you have done that in a lot of ways. Your early work was very much and have become icons of a city and also at the time um, allowed people to escape their reality. And I don't know if this is something intentional on your part, but, you know, both Yabane and BO18 are underground. Central is above ground. And there's a theme, at least when I was growing up, of escapism, these structures that allowed us to escape. Well, I I like what you're saying because... uh It was uh, a very spontaneous act. There was a lot of rage, but also a lot of of hope, a lot of pain, a lot of pleasure. I drew at night. I built during the day. There was no contractor, so I literally used my hands and those of the carpenters and the steel welders. It was a fantastic adventure. And from BO18, Bernard continued in the entertainment industry, building structures like Yabani, that circular sushi restaurant that you take an elevator to go down, and Central, a bar where you take an elevator to go up to this tunnel-like bar that opens up to see Beirut's eastern skyline. For me, these were places that I went with my family on dates, met up with friends, had conversations filled with love, sometimes heartbreaks. They host memories that are lodged in my mind, and, and I know that's not unique to me. So I look back at those years with a lot of nostalgia because I had the luxury to work on one single project, one at a time. And I wish, and I'm trying to go back to that. You can't be good in bed with 20 women. It doesn't work. 
And it's the same in architecture. So BO18 and Central and Yavani were projects I, I worked on exclusively. So there was that and nothing but that. I went to bed with them and nothing else. And during those years in post-war Lebanon, these sleek structures filled with alcohol and escapism were a sexy story for Western press. These were areas that not long before were bloody, dangerous, and deadly. People killed each other over religion and politics. And now here we were in a bar together, drinking and dancing. So Bernard continued to grow in popularity. Stories about him were published around the world. It went up to my head very quickly in the beginning because this media attention suddenly brings you in the spotlight unexpectedly. But then with that uh, comes a story that's prepackaged. And pretty soon, a year or two down the road, by the year 2000, 2001, I'm labeled the bad, the bad boy who dances on graves. And it sells. They ask me to lecture all over the place. And, but they want the bad boy who dances on graves to lecture. They don't want Bernard or whatever I'm experiencing at that point in time. They just want that, because that sold extremely well. That was a very catchy story. War can be extremely exotic. With the fame came two things. First, a lot more projects, this time residential ones, corporate ones, and a shift away from nightlife. Bigger budgets, bigger projects, bigger structures. An architect that was once a man of nightlife, building structures for people to escape in and let loose, was now building structures that for many was keeping them out. Yes, I have served banks, developers, entertainers. I've worked in the mud. I don't, I don't operate out of a comfortable cocoon where I'm given competitions for museums and public housing and that sort of stuff. But at some point, after Yabani, I thought... I had done my part uh, relative to that sector. And I moved on to something else, which is not the bad boy who dances on graves, and it became far more complex. But uh, this doesn't mean that the later work is not as political. It is, in fact, far more political. And Beirut has given me the chance and has taught me something I didn't know, that you can be far more political in your positions when you build a nightclub than when you build a museum, or a hospital, or a palace of justice. Architecture marks the territory, marks the city fabric, far more than uh, a lot of other disciplines, not to say probably more than any other discipline. I live in toxic grounds and I enjoy it. And I think this is where politics are practiced. This is where resistance happens. Are there certain people um, that you have refused to work with, and what are the conditions under which you say yes and the conditions under you, which you say no to projects? Yes, of course, I've, I've, uh, I don't take uh, everything that comes. I don't necessarily take the most comfortable situations either. We've taken sometimes very absurd situations that may seem even dangerous at the outset. You know, I like dark movies also. I'm not, I'm not into sugar-coated movies that have always... Uh, stupid happy endings at the end. We try to build a happy ending in our projects, but don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very positive person. I try to, uh, to do good things. <laughs> I'm not the bad boy who dances on graves. I don't dance. <laughs> You're still in Beirut when you, when you have the option of, of leaving, and I think that is the ultimate act of 
optimism, I think, um, and active resistance. And I and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why why you choose to stay in Beirut. Well, Beirut has allowed me to do things that uh, that uh, that I wouldn't be able to do. Um, I'm not talking about scale. Back in '93, when uh, I made my first jump back to Beirut, you know, it was a—I was not absolutely sure about the choice. And looking back, I have no doubt that if I had stayed in the U.S., I would have built a far more stable career. Certainly, I have no doubt. But that's not what I'm after. I think the battles we we were waging here are far more relevant. I think it's also important for people to know that when you started out, um, you often said that you were known as the paper architect. And I think for a lot of uh, emerging architects that are young and look look at you as someone that they would like to emulate, um, I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about having this kind of reputation as a paper architect and really pushing and persevering against the against the grain, as they say, um, even when I'm sure at times it was disheartening. But I think young architects or, or those, who, um, those who are looking to, uh, to study architecture or those who are studying architecture, it's the case of my son who's 20 years old, should really uh, consider reinventing not the profession, but but their their take on the profession. I don't think uh, it would be possible for me to do what I've done if I was 20 today. Uh, things have changed. And I've also made moves that were not very orthodox. For instance, my first building is a building uh, I was fortunate to uh, to be able to have it financed by my father. I mean, that's that's not something um, politically correct architect would say, but I confess, yes, my first building, I owe it to my dad. She's a fils à papa, okay? And whoever doesn't like that doesn't like it. But it was done for a good cause, hopefully. I didn't go and buy a Ferrari with that money. I, I built a, a project. And I think that if that had not happened, I don't know if I would have been given the margin to do whatever followed. So it's, uh, it's circumstances that I've also provoked, sometimes in not so orthodox ways, you know. Just like my father was not very, you know, keen, was not very happy about seeing any of his kids becoming architects, or was very worried about that. But it was my life, and, and I think it's my son's life. He'll, it's an extremely uh, tough field. I have a lot of friends who who've lost their minds because of because of their love of architecture it's it can be a very dangerous thing and extremely deceiving i wanted to ask you a little bit of a personal question about who who you turn to architecture as you said is is very difficult and you're hit with a reality especially when you leave let's say the confines of a classroom but who did you turn to when times got very difficult as i'm sure they did I think one person who really was was extremely, extremely uh, key and uh, supportive was my spouse in my beginnings, who also paid the price of that because I was not always around and uh, I was not always uh, 
I was not the person you wanted to be around sometimes because it's an extremely constraining, um, lots of ups and downs in, in this profession. But uh, I do owe her lots, and I think uh, I also have great friends around me who um, who help me breathe every once in a while, and, and that's very important. I also owe my first building uh, to my father, who never looked at my work when I was at school, because he thought that uh, RISD and Harvard was full of losers, and I think he's a bit right. <laughs> it, never really, never, it never impressed him. So all the school period for him was of no importance at all until uh, I was ready to build this first thing. And uh, he was extremely supportive, even financially and, uh, and, uh, and uh, morally. I, mean, I don't think I had the guts to go ahead and get this thing built in six months when no contractor wanted to build it, when we didn't have the money for it, when it was geographically not in the location it was supposed to be in. It, was, it looked completely absurd. Uh, but he was the kind of man who would tell you, uh, you either do it or you're, you're a loser or you're a schmuck. You know, life is, should be built around risky and colorful episodes like that. Otherwise, you'll have a boring life. I remember once, uh, I'm not sure in what talk it was, but you mentioned your mother being one of the first female architects in Lebanon. Is that true? Yes. The first, I think she was the first uh, registered female architect in Lebanon. But it was very unfortunate for her, very unfortunate for her to be <laughs> the wife of the man she married who basically uh, did not, uh, it was not possible for her to have her own space to be an architect because he was extremely, he was too, um, maybe too big, too, uh, too loud, too invasive, too, uh, too difficult. Um, having two parents that were architects, I wonder how you see your parents in your work today. Do you do you still see you see traces of them in your work? Certainly, I mean more specifically my father because uh, because he did practice and because uh, I even the first nine years of my office were under his roof, and and of course I I, I do feel a lot of, uh, I do feel my father extremely present, although he's, he's been gone for about 10 years, but, but um, he certainly was uh, extremely important in many choices I made. You've built a name for yourself, you're recognized around the world. Um, you've built for at least for someone that grew up in Lebanon in the 90s icons of people's lives um, icons of the country that you're from I would say that's a great legacy um, what's what would you like to do next well I hope it's not over <laughs> otherwise I'll get the hell out of here and I'll, and I'll move to something else <laughs> you know, I'll get a farm somewhere and Somewhere where you know I can be nice and stop smoking and stop drinking and stop doing bad things and and just take care of my cows and. <laughs> um, last question for you. I I wanted to ask um, if um, if someone were to write two lines of your obituary, what would you want them to be? I said it in French once. Cause uh, toujours. I'm I'm uh, I'm no longer here. You know. So after me, après moi le déluge, you know, I, uh, as long as I'm here, I'm here. 
whatever happens after I'm gone, uh, I'm no longer concerned. My building's already there, so I think that's enough. Thank you so much. I I want to say that I really, really love talking to you. Um, yeah, I've heard your name so much. I have so many memories, uh, so many memories, good and bad ones in the structures that you've built. And I want to thank you for that. Bad ones. Oh, yeah. So yeah. many family, so so many uh, dramas. Yeah. We'll discuss that over coffee ne- the next time you come to Beirut. Khalas, next time. Okay. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. This episode was produced by Tamara Rasamni, Alex Atak, Dana Balut, and myself, Hibbe Fisher. Sound design by Alex Atak and mixing by Mohamed Khayzat. Fact-checking by Zaina Duwader. Our original sting was composed by Ramzi Bashur, and El Empire is a production by the Kerning Cultures Network. If you're liking El Empire, subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. Also, leave a rating and review on whatever podcast app you're listening to us from. It helps boost our rankings, and other listeners can find out about these awesome stories, too. And next week on El Empire... It started with, this woman deserves more. She's incredible, she's amazing, she's fashionable, she's misunderstood, she's stereotyped, and we understand her, we get her, and we're going to serve her the best way we can, and we're also going to represent her in a way that has not been done before. That's in one week. Thanks for listening. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.